When we need a favor or some advice, or maybe even an introduction for a new opportunity, a lot of us start by asking our closest colleagues and friends for help. Yet, we may be missing a lot of opportunities by stopping there. On this episode, The Power of Connecting with a Friend of a Friend. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 347. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Every leader needs to network effectively. Every leader needs to build relationships. And you've heard on this show many times the importance and even the tactics of how to continue to grow your network through networking activities. And so many of those are valuable, and I do them regularly, and I know many of you do as well. And I also think that many of us, I know me, am not really always 100% up on the science of networking and some of the most recent research that's coming out that's helping me, at least, and I hope for you after today's conversation, challenge you to think about networking and the value of networking in a new way. Today's guest is going to really challenge us on that. It's going to help us to really think about how we can leverage not only building new relationships, but to leverage our existing relationships as well, too. I'm so thrilled to welcome back to the show David Burkus. David is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and an associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. His TED Talk has been viewed over 1.8 million times. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, and he's now listed as well on Thinkers 50. He just released his new book, Friend of a Friend, which challenges people to grow their networks and build key connections ones that are based on the science of human behavior. David, glad to welcome you back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I, uh, that was quite the introduction. I hope we can actually meet that bar. Well, hey, congrats on making Thinkers 50, man. Last time you were on, you had worn on Thinkers 50, and then you appeared on the show, and now look what's happened to you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 100, it's 100% this show. You know, they, they, what was it, 2015, I think it was on the radar, which is sort of their like also-rans uh, or honorable mentions or... Or, or what have you. And so, I mean, I kind of figured I would stay there for a long time, but then I did this show and they bumped me into the, the list of the top 50. So thank See you. See the power of weak ties in your network? <laughs> We're going to get into this. We're going to get into this. So in, in seriousness, one of the things that really kind of hit me in the middle of the head as I was reading the book over the last few days is what you said in the book is one of the best ways to grow your network is not to go out and meet new people, which I, I, as I think about now, having read the book, I'm thinking, oh, oh, okay, this is a whole new way to think about this. But how did you come to that conclusion? I, I mean, I followed the data. So the whole, the whole book, the whole premise of the book is that if you look at networking books in the past, we get a lot of advice. Most of them are actually advice books, which is fine. Advice is great. The, the problem is that advice is only really worth it when you when you consider that like this is a sample size of one and it's generalizable out to me if I look and think and act like the author of this person. But really, if you want advice that works for everyone, then you need a bigger sample size, right? This is, you know, basics of, of uh, statistical analysis. You need a bigger sample size. 
And so it was better to look at what does the science say? And so I've spent the last you know two years really diving deep into network science and trying to figure out what are the what are the things that are universally true about all networks? So not just human networks, but sort of all networks. And then what does that mean for those of us that are trying to to leverage, grow, or even just improve the value of our existing networks? How do we sort of respond accordingly? And and the result is the book Friend of a Friend. But the the result, like you said, one of the first things you learn is that this whole strategy of like networking equals meeting total strangers is really sort of invalid. There's a couple different reasons. The biggest being the time involved in meeting strangers and also the limited return on investment, the likelihood that that new stranger, I mean, we, I love the stories of like, I met a random stranger and it changed my life. Those are great stories. We tell them because they happen so infrequently because the likelihood of a total stranger turning out to just be that perfect person at that perfect time is is pretty unlikely. And even the likelihood that you're going to build the rapport with that person to to provide value to you right off the bat is very unlikely. What's much more likely is that, as you said, your, your weak ties, the people that you already know, but you don't interact with too much. Maybe you knew them really well and then you fell into sort of the dormant uh, stage with them. Or maybe they're that person that like I know their name uh, and I know what they do, but I don't really know anything more about them. Those are people that you already know, so building rapport is easy, but are operating in a lot of other areas of this larger network, different social circles, sometimes different geographies, et cetera. They have access to new information the same way a total stranger would, but you already know them, right? So reaching out to them is far easier than like going to those networking mixers and standing in the corner of the room hoping something useful comes of it, which anyone's ever been to one of those meetings, you know, nothing useful is going to come of it. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been to those before too, and it's it's uncomfortable. I mean, one of the things I'd love you cite in the book is the uh, the research around networking and going to events like that literally makes people feel dirty. <laughs> <laughs> like yes. biologically, like people want to take showers afterwards, which is Yeah, amazing. no, I, one, of, one of my favorite studies in the book that, yeah, as you said, it was just thinking about times where we had to reach out and make a new professional connection left people with subconscious thoughts of wanting to take a shower, which I think is is fantastic. The, the other thing that's in that same study, though, is reaching out to make a new uh, friend, right? So when a, a friend introduces you and you make a new friend or when you meet someone in an activity and you become friends, that didn't have an effect. So it's not that meeting new people, it's specifically this idea of of meeting new people to advance a professional type of connection. That idea uh-huh. is what leaves people feel dirty. That's, I mean, truthfully, that's why the book is called Friend of a Friend because we, we never have a problem networking when it has to do with friendships because we don't see those as instrumental, transactional, et cetera. But the truth is every, everybody's a friend, right? Whether, whether or not they're in your professional life or not, all of our contacts are still friends. We ought to be thinking of them that way regardless of whether or not that, you know, and friends are friends, whether they turn out to be useful to you or not, which is a big differentiator between why people feel dirty and why they don't. So one of the big mind shift changes here is rather than thinking about like, how do I grow the network and meet more people and have the number increase on whatever, you know, app you're tracking your connections (laughs) on is to think about how do you engage with some of the people you already know, you may not be super close to. And one thing that you've said is there are people in your life that you don't interact with anymore. And that's a good thing. Uh, Why is that a good thing? Well, so there's in the the book, we talk about this concept of dormant ties, which are, they're not the same thing as weak ties. Dormant ties are people that you know, and you used to know fairly closely. And then for some reason or another, they they fell by the wayside. Sometimes that happens because they go to work for a different company or they move or something like that. But other times there are people who are in your life and who you very consciously decided don't need to be as involved 
in your life as possible, right? So almost for therapeutic or psychological reasons, these people become dormant ties. The interesting thing is that th that doesn't mean that you need to sort of shun them, ignore them for the rest of your life, right? Often you can get that kind of psychological benefit by giving someone permission to be a dormant tie, right? And that's that's just having an intentional uh, perspective on your network. So it's, it's okay. Again, you're not going to just shun them entirely. It's okay to have somebody be a uh, dormant tie that you check in with every once in a while. And, and sometimes, honestly, sometimes you do it for sanity's sake. I mean, leaders especially, you you know a lot of people. There are a lot of people who want lots of things from you. And giving yourself permission to not feel guilty when you haven't talked to somebody in a while is sometimes a huge psychological benefit, right? You can still provide value to them. They can still provide value to you. In fact, some evidence, you know, suggest, and we talk about it in the book, suggests that you're going to provide more value to them by not being that close connection, but by letting them go off in their domain, you go off in your domain and checking in every once in a while. Oh, fascinating. And, and you know, I, I was kind of joking at the beginning, but in a way, it was serious. Like, you and I are not good friends. We are weak, if not dormant connections. We've talked a couple of times, but we've both helped each other out. You know, uh, on, on your end, you've helped out build our community and help people to learn. Uh, on our end, helped you to get more visibility for some of your work. And so... I think in some ways that's that's ideal, and so not that I don't want to be friends with you, by the way, <laughs> but um, but but being realistic about what your relationships look like in life. I mean, it sounds like that part of that is just kind of getting real about that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you know, this is one of the so so. There's the networking means meeting total strangers sort of fallacy, and then there's also the the idea that these power networkers are the people that are you know constantly providing value, constantly providing value, and and that's true. But don't mistake that like constantly providing value to the network means you have to be close friends who know personal details about everyone type of thing. Sometimes just being that weak tie that checks in every once in a while and, and provides value is, is of benefit, right? If you and I were interacting all of the time, then our two audiences, our two sort of followings would probably overlap more than would be healthy for us in terms of being able to kind of co-promote stuff, right? So there's a huge benefit to not doing that. And I think when you understand that sort of network science idea, the idea that we all exist inside a network, some are close ties, some are weak ties, some are dormant ties, some are first degree, second degree of separation, or as I call them in the book, friend of a friend, right? Those, those are all different categories that exist in a network. It's, it's physically impossible to make everyone a close tie. It's, it's never going to happen. So you, A, you don't have to feel guilty about it, but B, like you should actually be kind of proud of that fact because that's much more realistic for your schedule, especially if you're in a leadership role, right? You can't be friends with everybody. But also, you can provide more value by not being that close friend sometimes. This is making me think about the research that I think in some ways well-intended, but has been a bit of an obstacle for some of us. I know it has been for me uh, that Dunbar did. And looking at just like how many how many meaningful human relationships can the average person have? and And he landed on this number of... 150. Uh, and I think a lot of people have heard this, like, you know, you can have about 100, 150 good close relationships. It turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Tell me more, like, how does, uh, how did you frame that in the, in this, in looking at the research on networking as a whole? Yeah. So, I mean, little is an, is like the understatement of the episode because Dunbar's study is one of the most misunderstood studies and then sort of misapplied, uh, right? So, so like you said, Dunbar sort of did the study looking at, at, and actually a couple different studies looking at what's the sort of the average for meaningful connections, right? And it's settled around 150. There's a couple different ways he did that. And then he looks at sort of anecdotal evidence 
that you know tribes have been organizing themselves and this, et cetera. And, and if it weren't truthfully, if it weren't for I think Gladwell, we probably never would have heard of Dunbar's research. And and Gladwell sort of oversimplifies it the way we all do. The the lesson that most people there's two lessons that most people take from Dunbar's thing, which is that 150 is the ideal number of meaningful relationships. Well, the truth is Dunbar's research suggested that it's better to think about it more as concentric circles. And there, I mean, there's, so there's your close, close people, which he didn't say was 150. Then there are sort of concentric circles. 150 was basically the number of people that without the aid of technology, you could basically like match a face to a name and understand all and keep track of all of the personal details of. But then there were other concentric circles out beyond 150, right? So there, so it's not that you could remember the names, for example, but maybe you can't pair the name with a face if you've ever had that issue or you remember faces, but you don't. And this is all before like, thinking about the technology that we have today, right? So that's so that's misunderstanding one. It may be that 150 is sort of that right number, but with technology, it's probably not. The other thing is that when we say average, we, we mean something really interesting. Average in, in most of these studies and, and in attempts at replication, the average implies a, a sort of a normative distribution, an inverted U type shape. Uh, but the truth is, in most of these studies, it doesn't actually follow that when you graph kind of the number of connections per person, et cetera, it actually looks more like a power law, that sort of long tail uh, thing, the, the Pareto principle, if you will, the 80-20 rule, et cetera. So some people have far more, vastly more connections than other people. And then some people have fewer than 150. So we're all sort of exist along this curve, um, which is why it feels like some people are better networkers than you and have more connections than you, that they they do. It's, it's in the numbers. But the other interesting thing in this curve is that it suggests that as you move up the curve, you it gets easier to meet new people. If you have more connections, more connections are getting introduced to you, which is why if you're not in that big range, it can feel like networking is really hard and it comes easily to other people. Usually what happens is people put in the work to move themselves up the curve and then the sort of gains, it's like gravitational pull. It sort of, as you gain numbers of, of connections, it gets easier and easier because new ones sort of come to you. So there's a couple different things wrong with that, kind of our understanding of it. But I think the, the biggest is just this idea that if you think 150 means that after 150 people, my, and none of all of my networking efforts are for naught, that's a huge misunderstanding of the research. Yeah, and I'm and I'm conscious of the fact that you know we're, we're kind of talking on both sides of this too. On one hand, you know you can have all these, <laughs> you can really grow a network that is substantially more than 150, or I think even the average of like 600. You talk about in the book of some of the, the more recent research, um, but at the same time, it's not necessarily the goal is to build a larger number. It's to start to look at some of these dormant links and weaker links and how do you re-engage? And so I'm I'm curious, David, you know, we we have a client right now who is in the process of thinking through a career move because likely his job will get eliminated in the next couple of months. And uh, I was talking to him about your book in the last couple of days and I was trying to think like where would be the place he'd start? Um you know, his he, he was telling me like I hey, I'm going to go and just reach out to some of my close connections and start, you know, reconnecting with relationships of people I know really well. As you've gone through this research like when you think about someone in that situation now, what would you tell them that's different than what kind of we traditionally think about when we're talking about building a network? Yeah. So in, in those situations, again, this is where that 150 and the close connections kind of fallacy can be really damaging is there's a tendency to do that, to stick to our, our close connections. A, because those are the people that we trust with information like I got fired or I got laid off, et cetera. I mean, it's it's a little embarrassing, right? And so we don't like the idea of broadcasting it, right? So I, I get that. Like, you, I, by all means, please do not 
post on LinkedIn every single day that you're looking for work. That's embarrassing and it probably won't work, right? But but just staying inside those close connections are not going to help either. The, those close connections are more likely to be only aware of opportunities you're already aware of. They're more likely to like they they're more likely to be motivated to help you, but not have the information they need to help you. They're more likely to have the same contacts as you already. So uh, Ronald Burt, one of the sociologists whose research we we feature prominently in the book, uh, calls these a redundancy, which is a perfect term for it. Essentially, if you have eighty percent the same connections, there's eighty percent redundancy in your two networks, right? Which is not a good thing. So the best place to start would be re-engaging those dormant ties first, right? Dormant ties, remember, are the ones that were close, but you haven't talked to in a while. So maybe they got a new job, maybe they did, you know, maybe they moved geographies, et cetera. Because these people are running around in a different part of the, the broad network that we're all in, they're gonna have new and different connections for you. They're gonna have new information. They're more likely to be able to provide you that, that new information that you need to find new work than anyone else. And this has been true for, you know, we've known this in the research for uh, almost 40 years, 40 plus years. Uh, the first big study of this was Mark Granovetter's study in 1970, early 1970s on the strength of weak ties. And every time we sort of try and replicate it, we find that that weak ties, which are again, contacts that you know, but don't know that well, uh, weak ties are more likely to provide valuable information, more likely to have leads for jobs, all of that sort of stuff. So I would start there. Now the, the warning there is that often re-engaging these sort of dormant ties is a bit uncomfortable. And the motivation it sounds like your client wants to, to do is motivated to do things that are sort of very comfortable. So I'm also okay with the idea that you start with those close connections so that you can kind of get yourself used to talking about your new situation. But uh, you can you cannot stop with just those new connections. Once you're comfortable talking about the new situation you find you're in, yourself in, you've got to start reaching out to dormant weak ties because those are the people that are actually going to be able to help you. And you make this point very clearly in your work, and and hopefully people hear this too, that we're not saying like the closest people to you are not valuable relationships. Of course, they're super valuable relationships, the most important in our lives. It's just that if we're thinking about this through the lens of professional networking and opening up new opportunities, our closest personal and professional network relationships tend not to be the places where we uncover those new opportunities. Am, am I capturing that well? Yeah, that's exactly right. Your, your weak and dormant ties are going to help you find new opportunities. Your close connections are still usually important. Those are the people that are going to help you decide which opportunity to take. So we're not ignoring them, but you're not going to get the new information you need to solve this puzzle from them. They're going to help you sort through the new information you get from those weak and dormant ties. I feel like you mentioned this in the book, and I'm, I'm blanking on the number, but is, are there statistics on when you look at new opportunities, job leads, things like that? that come out of like these different parts of our networks, like how many of those tend to come from the close connections versus how many come from weaker dormant ties? Yeah. So, I mean, there are, they vary by study. So I can't give you like an exact 44%, et cetera. Most of the time it's a, it's a plurality. The, the, the biggest percentage come from weak and dormant ties. It's usually not more than 51%, but it's more than any other category. So it's usually a plurality somewhere between 40 and 50% come from those weak and dormant ties. Uh, then another group of people, it comes from uh, business contacts, meaning like people you're currently in contact with either in your organization or clients of your organization, et cetera, but people you see sort of every day. Uh, and then you sort of trickle down the numbers into the close knit connections and, and friend of a friend connections and all that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating. I mean, when you, when you think about how often we turn to the people closest to us and we don't think about going out and making those new connections. 
And yet we're, a lot of us are missing opportunities to open up new conversations and new connection points just because we don't think about doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, and the, you know, the strong, the strong hint in here that we're doing, we're going things wrong is the, the subtitle of the book is understanding the hidden networks, hidden meaning. It's that thing that we tend to skip your yeah. weak and dormant ties are hidden because you don't tend to skip them. So are your friend of a friend, first and second degree connections, people you could be referred to. What we tend to do is trust our close knit people. And then when that well runs dry, we start blindly applying to stuff on LinkedIn or whatever. So we jump from like weak ties or we jump from close knit ties to total strangers, and we miss the weak and dormant ties, which are sort of one concentric circle out from the close-knit connections, and we miss the first and second degree connections, those people who we could be introduced to through our close-knit or through our weak ties, et cetera. Those are what I sort of refer to as the hidden network, not hidden because they're not there, they're hard to see, hidden because we just sort of forget about them and jump right from close-knit over to just total strangers, and, and then we wonder why it's not working. I really like this advice of, uh, you know, maybe you start with the people are closest to you just so you get comfortable having those conversations, but then that pretty quickly morphs into looking at those weak and dormant ties. And I'm, I'm curious as you've researched this and talked to people, my sense is the average person would be like, okay, what do I do? Like I have this person I worked with two years ago in this last role. We had a pretty good relationship, but now all of a sudden I'm reaching out after I haven't talked to them for two years. Is there anything you've come across that you found has been really helpful for people of just kind of making that first reconnection point after some after a relationship's been dormant for that amount of time? Yeah. So, I, so the biggest problem, truthfully, the biggest lesson is that don't let them get too dormant, right? So it's sort of that, what was the, there's an old Harvey McKay book, which is an advice book, but it's, it's decent advice about digging your well before you're thirsty, right? Mm. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I'm answering your, your question for your client because I'm assuming that they weren't doing that. But the real lesson from all of this is to be regularly re-engaging with weak and dormant ties on sort of a regular cycle, six months, three months, whatever's comfortable for that relationship. So that when it actually comes time to be like the time where you need something, it's not uncomfortable. Right. So that's that's the first lesson, right, is to just sort of constantly be checking back with people in that regard. And there's a there's a myriad of different ways to do that. My my favorite trick that I explain on podcasts because it's simple and easy is to use social media, but use social media a little bit differently. Follow people on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter to know what's going on in their life and then send them a more personal thing like an email, a phone call, a text message, what have you. Don't just click like or comment about what's going on in their life and what can you can you provide value like oh we're, we just vacationed in Hawaii and you can go oh you know what we went there last year and here's a great restaurant or blah 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 these are all little things you can do on a regular basis to sort of be continuously reaching out to people so it's not that awkward hey i haven't talked to you in 2 years type of thing now that said that's that's the best piece of advice is to be doing this on sort of a regular cycle so you don't find yourself in that situation if you do find yourself in that situation then again you've kind of got to ramp up the courage to do it. But truthfully, the best advice I can give you is be open and honest and, and forthright about why you're reaching back out to them. One of the weirdest things you can get is that email that the first two paragraphs pretend to be cared about them and then you get to the thing they really want, right? Yeah. I would just be open and honest and go, hey, you know, how are you doing? I hope I hope this email finds you well. Life has been sort of crazy busy on my end because of this and I regret that we haven't been able to keep in touch as much. Unfortunately, all of that was, you know, led to this situation that I find myself in now. People are generally good people if you're open and honest with them. If you're trying to trick them that you care and you're doing all of this stuff and then you get to the real ask, that's a little awkward, right? So the, the first lesson is to not wait until you're 
find yourself in that position, but to be constantly checking back. But if you can't do that, then be open and honest about why you're reaching out. Most people are going to respond positively to that. I get that it sort of takes some courage to do, but if you try it a couple times, you'll start to see it's received positively and then you go from there. There's a word in the book that I think is pronounced homophily. Am I getting that right? That is exactly right. Homophily. <sighs> I nailed it. Good. <laughs> so <laughs> I think this is a really key point in what you're teaching and what the research says on how if we don't do some of this reaching out to our weaker and dormant connections, some of the challenges we can run into. And in particular, you mentioned the example in the book of the Hillary Clinton campaign and what went wrong. Tell us about that. Yeah. So like as most of America, I tuned in on November 9th watching the election returns and I was shocked that I was still awake after 8.30 and still watching them, right? And I think most people were. And as things started to unfold, the weirdest scenario happened, which is that Donald Trump won the election because he won Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and, and Michigan, right? Now, what's weird about that is sort of twofold. As soon as it happened, everybody looked back retroactively and went like, oh, yeah, well, of course, right? Rust Belt states, blah, 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 blah. But everybody still acted like this was a bit of a surprise. And the truth was, it wasn't a surprise. So for uh, as long as, even even longer, really, as long as we knew who the two candidates were, there were people even on the Democratic side who knew this is going to be uh, the Trump campaign strategy. These are the states they're going for. These are the states the Trump campaign are, are going to win. And the interesting thing was that there were Democratic operatives who were warning that this is this is going to happen. Probably the most prominent was actually Michael Moore, the, the filmmaker who was from Michigan, who still lives in Michigan and said, these people are going out to to Trump. They were formerly Democratic, strong union, strong blue collar workforce, and they're responding to the Trump message and you better watch out. And really in the, on the larger side, most of these people were not heard. Some of them were even laughed at in the, uh, in the Clinton campaign. There was actually even a story of, uh, campaign workers from one of the prominent unions that works with the democratic party in Iowa saying that, Hey, our colleagues in Michigan are saying things aren't going well. So we're going to move to Michigan. We're going to move some of our people who are canvassing neighborhoods from Iowa to Michigan. They started booking hotel rooms in Michigan, all that sort of stuff. And then the Clinton campaign, the inner circle in Brooklyn, got back to them and said, stay where you are. We have data. We have models that show we're going to win Michigan by five points. What you're hearing is not accurate, et cetera. Stay where you are. We need the Trump campaign to think that Iowa is in play. So I don't know if this is two-dimensional chess, three-dimensional chess, whatever you call it. But what it was, was a mistake. It turned out that the people that were on the fringes of the campaign had a more accurate picture than what the inner circle did. And the reason is that the inner circle was, in my opinion, sort of two alike. They were all cut from a similar cloth. They all had sort of similar things. And they were all trusting these models a bit too much. And it was the people on the fringes, the people who were deep into the sort of democratic side, but also knew these exact people, centrist, blue collar, union worker type of people that that were what actually won this campaign they were the ones warning but their warnings were essentially ignored the the lesson here for leaders and i realize that this is one of a myriad of factors that people are unpacking as to what happened in that election but the lesson for leaders is that often especially when you've got that inner circle you need to make sure that that inner circle isn't to use the ronald burt term redundant right that they don't look alike think alike act alike have all of the same network connections you need a diversity of people around you not just because that diversity of thinking is beneficial, but also because the diversity of network will be feeding you lots of information you wouldn't otherwise have. The biggest problem wasn't that the signs were there. The biggest problem was the signs were ignored because they weren't coming from the right people. And, and this is true in a variety of settings for leaders that if you have too similar, too homogenous, 
uh, of a uh, of an inner sanctum, you end up missing the information you need to make good decisions. It's also when we talk about homophily, the other dangerous thing is homophily literally translates love of same. But one of the things we're finding is that homophily is a network effect. In other words, that the the pull towards having a network that is too similar is one part, a smaller part, that sort of normal love of same, and a much larger part, the fact that if you have not a not diverse enough network, the new connections that come into you through your existing connections are more likely to look and act and think like the people you're already connected to. So you can end up sort of not only in that echo chamber, but actively trying to meet new people to break out of it. And all of the new people that your network is serving you are in the echo chamber. So you haven't actually broken out of it. So there's a strong sort of very deliberate effort that needs to happen to meet the people you need to introduce you to the more people that you need to have a more diverse network to get the information you need to make good decisions. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier in keeping those dormant and weak ties a little closer. Uh, and so part of what I'm kind of extrapolating here is not only is that good to do just for the digging your well before you need it, but from a leadership standpoint, if you're keeping touch with what people are saying, thinking, doing that are not in your organization, that are not in your industry on a somewhat regular basis, you're more likely to make better decisions because you have a better and more accurate view of the world. That's exactly right. And I mean, every industry, every sector is itself a network. It's a series of relationships between vendors and suppliers, customers, uh, competitive companies, all of that sort of thing. And if you're just focused too much on the network of just your company and its relationship with customers, uh, and especially if you're to in, if you work for a large organization, you're too focused on the network inside your company and you know the senior levels that you're in. You're missing a lot of information that's being passed around that network, and it can lead to some really damaging decisions. It's really fascinating. I mean, I recall the example you gave about the campaign, hearing a couple of interviews a few weeks after the election. And some of the reporters who were embedded in the states that you mentioned, uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, you know, people were asking them, were you surprised? And, and surprisingly, <laughs> the answer was no, we weren't surprised because we were talking to people on the ground and we were hearing these things. And so the information was there. But as you point out, it wasn't getting to the decision makers. And certainly, I don't mean to pick on Clinton's campaign. We've all done this, right? I mean, all of us have made this mistake. And so... However, we can be more intentional about looking out and challenging our thinking so we don't fall into this trap. I think from a leadership standpoint, it's a critical lesson here. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I use that one because it's fresh and it's still the one that I think for a lot of people is still sort of surprising. But history is full of examples of poor decisions leaders made because they didn't have access to enough information. And that's ultimately what networks are about in this capacity is that they're about feeding you more and more diverse information so you can make a better decision. So the book is out. One of the great things you've done is you've already set up a link for our audience to get access to some additional material. Uh, thank you so much for doing that. Can you share a little bit about uh, not only where it is, but what people will find if they go there? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of months ago, I created actually as a bonus for people who pre-order the book, this cool um, audio. Well, I think it's cool, but it's me talking. So I'm a little biased in that. Um, this cool audio course called How to Connect, which is a lesson based on the, the research and, and lessons from the book on how to give and get the introductions that you need. So how do you properly introduce two people? And then also, how do you search out your network to get the introductions that you need? It's all audio, so if you like podcasting, you'll you'll love it. It's in that similar medium. And it's available for free at davidberkus.com slash coaching for leaders. 
Awesome. So I'm going to get that in the weekly leadership guide. So for those of you who receive that every Wednesday, watch for that. It'll be in there so you can follow the link. David, last time you were on the show, I asked you what you changed your mind on. This time, I'm I'm curious, uh, looking at you know, you looking at your own networking over the years, and especially knowing what you know today and having done this research, where have you messed this up yourself? So probably the biggest mistake I made early, early on in my career was uh, was honestly trusting social media too much, right? So it's it's way too tempting to get focused on vanity metrics. How many followers do I have on Twitter? How many connections do I have on LinkedIn, et cetera? In looking at the research, what I found is that for the majority of people, so this is maybe we exempt those like Instagram celebrities who can snap a picture and get paid like 10 grand from some company. But for the majority of people, these tools are only useful to the extent that they aid your offline network. So your online network is only really useful if it is helping you keep track of your offline real world network or helping funnel people into your offline real world network. But you've got to get put down the phone. You got to get off the screens and get into meeting people um, in real life. And so those tools can be useful, but they're only useful if you're aiding your offline network. 2018, tons of technology, but nothing about networks has changed. Face to face still dominates. David Burkus is the author of Friend of a Friend. Check it out. David, thank you so much for this wisdom and the deep dive you've done on the research on this. Super appreciate oh, it. Thank you so much for having me. David and I talked in detail during this conversation about the value of getting perspective from outside your own company and industry. If that is something you want to get better at and you're looking for the right framework to do that well, it is one of the many benefits of being a member in the Coaching for Leaders Academy. We don't have applications open at the time this episode is airing, but if you'd like to get on the early alert list when applications do open again, you can visit coachingforleaders.com slash academy, or you can just click the Academy button when you're on the coachingforleaders.com website, and it'll take you there to find more information and to register on the early alert list when applications applications do open again. And thanks for your interest if you decide to check it out. Now, a few related episodes to today's conversation. If you go into the podcast library on the website and select the networking topic as your option, you're going to find a few episodes there, actually a whole bunch of episodes there that are going to be relevant to this topic as well. One of them is episode 236, How Super Bosses Master the Flow of Talent. My guest was Cindy Finkelstein in that episode, and he has a fabulous book called Super Bosses. And he talked in that conversation about how some of the top managers uh, and leaders in industry are utilizing great talent development skills in order to develop people that um, sometimes leave and go on to other organizations, but ultimately are of benefit to the organization they come from the boss who helped develop them. And it's a really fascinating look at the problem that a lot of leaders have who do a great job is people uh, develop themselves uh, with the help of, of great leadership and leave the organization. And a lot of times we see that as a loss and no doubt in the short term it is. But part of the work that Finkelstein has uh, done on this is looking at the research over the long term and how that often comes back to help both organizations and the leader. Uh, it's really fascinating. Episode 236, if you haven't checked that one out. Also of value to you would be episode 253, New Management Practices of Leading Organizations. 
That is the last episode David Berkus was on. Uh, David shared some of the research he uncovered in his last book and talked about some of the new practices that innovative organizations are utilizing out there in order to really get the best results. Tons of things we covered in that episode. Again, that's episode 253. Also, I'd recommend episode 305, How to Deal with the Diminishers. My guest on that episode was Liz Wiseman. Liz has done some fabulous work around the concept of multipliers and diminishers. And in detail, we talked about how to watch out for the diminishers in your organization, particularly if the diminisher may be you. All of us have the capacity to diminish at times. And also, how you can be the kind of person who is a multiplier. And there are some fabulous resources in that episode. So check that out, episode 305. And you can get access to all of those past episodes. And more importantly, you can search by topic of what's most important to you right now by going to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. And if you haven't already set up your free membership, it'll allow you to do that right there. And when you set up your free membership, you get full access to the past library, the member cast, my book notes, the weekly leadership guide, and there's a whole bunch more I'm not even mentioning that's part of that membership portal. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com and you'll get access right there. Next week, Bonnie and I are back. It's the first Monday of the month for our monthly question and answer show. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for next week or a future question answer show, the first Monday of every month, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Submit your question there and Bonnie and I will see you next Monday. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.